Amen. Good morning. It's awesome to see all of you. If you're new to us, uh, my name is Matt, and I am the ministry operations pastor here, the lead pastor and teaching pastor is Tom. He's sitting right there, but he has uh, graciously allowed me to preach this morning on Renewal Sunday, and thanks to the worship team who gave uh, our worship pastor, Ryan. Yeah, awesome. Um, don't tell them, but they could worship lead at other churches, and we get to have them uh, along with our worship pastor, Ryan, who took this week to uh, plan out the next series and learn some new music and things like that, so you guys are amazing. And they're all volunteers. These are all lay ministers, um, which is going to be a theme for the morning, but if you know me, you know that my kind of my thing is I, I sort of love getting out there you know, and doing stuff, and in fact, I'm a little bizarre, like after the hurricane, I have this strange sort of joyful excitement, you know, like, where's the chainsaw, you know, and let's get out there. I wish I had a truck, you know, and, and it's a little off-putting, maybe a little weird that, you know, I'm so excited. It was probably partly because I had air conditioning, like, right after the storm, sorry, but um, it's easier to go serve when you come home to the air conditioning, trust me, but, um, but there's a reason I think that I, I am kind of that way, and it's not just because that's the way I am, or it's, you know, my unique proclivity, uh, and I think it has to do with this. So, when I was 15 years old, I went on my first short-term mission trip to uh, the Dominican Republic. A lot of you know about that. And that was really where I had this big epiphany, where this building a church out in the countryside, it was beautiful and felt the Lord call me to, to vocational ministry and all that. But that was like the movie. And then so the next year, of course, I went to the sequel, right? I went back to the Dominican Republic. Uh, but here's the deal. There was a little difference. So the next year we went, we were uh, in a little town, a little shanty town. Literally, it was called El Ranchito, which uh, literally means, you know, little ranch, but in the vernacular, it meant shanty town. And if you've been to the Caribbean or you've been to Central South America, you've, you've been around, you've seen shanty towns where it's just very densely populated and, and you know, tons of people and, and goats and chickens and everything everywhere and walking around and dogs and, and building on top of building and we went there to build a little church with a pastor's little house next to it, right in the middle of El Ranchito, right in the middle of July. And you're suffering for Jesus, but you forget the Jesus part you're forgetting about. You're just suffering. And, <laughs> and so we're trying to build this thing, and it just every morning it would rain for like three minutes and just create steam mud that you had to work in the mud and your, every step your boot would get stuck and just hot and miserable. And there were just a multitude of kids, just kids everywhere. And I don't mean that in a good way. I, I don't mean that in a Disney way. I mean little urchins like running around under your feet and hitting into you when you're carrying blocks and fighting in the middle of the work site and taunting you. And I mean, you put something down, it was gone in seconds. Just unbelievable these little kids everywhere and and we would eat these peanut butter and mango slime sandwiches that they made this mango jelly and the peanut butter was peanuts mushed up on this Brillo bread and so you had your Brillo bread mango slime sandwich and your lukewarm water that was so however they filtered it you wish that you just got the parasite And we were pretty miserable. So about day three, in the midst of our misery, uh, which had turned kind of to discouragement, I'll never forget it, my youth pastor, a guy named Kent Keller, we're all sitting there at break, 
hot, sweaty, eating our slime sandwich. And Kent walks up with this case of the iciest, coldest Coca-Cola bottles you have ever seen. I mean, here or there. And he sits down with this big stupid grin on his face and he passes out the Cokes and we're all sitting there and we're just kind of looking at him. And he goes, you know where I'm going today? Wendy's. And we're all like, is there a Wendy? We didn't want to say that because we're there to serve, you know, and we didn't want to admit that we were miserable. He goes, I'm going to Wendy's. And then he takes us on this journey of fantasy (laughs) to a Wendy's in Miami that we all knew. And he begins to tell this story at every detail, walking, opening the door, feeling the cold blast of air on the hot Miami day, walking in, walking over, smelling the smells, the burgers and the fries. He described it in in intricate detail, walking to the counter and placing his order, every speck of it, hearing the ice hit the bottom of his cup when they put it in there. All the choices of beverage. He described in in just delicious, delicious detail the first and every bite of his double bacon cheeseburger. He explained the rules for how he picked his first french fry, because you know there's an order. And then the the great finale, he described the first bite of his extra large frozen creamy chocolate frosty. And by the end of this, we were just, we had been transported to another place. And by the end of it, we're up and we're smiling and we're laughing and we're re-energized and we're reinvigorated and they've, he's repaired our lizard brains and restored them to humanity again. And, and we go back off to work, nothing changed. It was just as hot, the circumstances were just as bad, the little kids were just as terrible. But something had changed in us and what was it, what was it? It was that Kent had painted a little vision of home for us. He had for just a moment in our mind's eye taken us back home and had completely reinvigorated the way we saw the work. So what I want to do today as we enter into this psalm, because this, this is a tough psalm if you're not careful. Especially uh, if you grew up in a household that was big on guilt or in a church that was big on guilt. Um, I want you to think of this a little bit differently today as we continue on uh, with Renewal Sunday. So today is Renewal Sunday and what that means is that we're going to uh, talk a little bit about the work that needs to be done in our city to bring some heaven to earth for people who may never ever have known what heaven was like. Do you understand that that's what renewal ministry actually is? It's the same thing that Kent was doing with us there. We were in El Ranchito, La República Dominicana, because it was broken. It didn't know what home even looked like. It didn't even know. It had no idea what heaven could even be. And we were there, called by God, to do our little parts with our words and with our actions to restore little bits of heaven for them and to paint a vision that they could one day enjoy. 
You need to know that every ministry that we participate in at this church, everything we do, everything we volunteer for, support financially, that's the motive. It's an observation about something broken in our world that does not yet look like heaven and needs to be restored. So we're going to come to this psalm today like that. And then we're going to meet some renewal entrepreneurs, some ministers, lay ministers, who understand that. And we're going to ponder in our own hearts what little part of God's kingdom, what little piece of heaven God would have each of us recast for the sake of those He loves and has called us to love. So, with that in mind, I want to read you this this psalm. O Lord, who shall sojourn in your tent? Who shall dwell on your holy hill? He who walks blamelessly and does what is right and speaks the truth in his heart. He who does not slander with his tongue and does, not, uh, does, does no evil to his neighbor, nor takes up a reproach against his friend, in whose eyes a vile person is despised, but who honors those who fear the Lord, who swears to his own hurt and does not change, who does not put out his money, who does not put out his money at interest and does not take a bribe against the innocent, he who does these things shall never be moved. Let me tell you what's happening there. It's true that it is a recitation of requirements to be entering into the presence of God and to be in his holy place. That's true. In fact, it's a decalogue. If you count them, there's 10 of them. Does that uh, remind you of anywhere else in Scripture, the Ten Commandments, right? There are others. Some people think it was a liturgical uh, entry psalm, they called it. They thought that perhaps King David, we believe King David himself wrote this psalm, and possibly after he had recovered the Ark of the Covenant that contained the law and was reestablishing its place in the tabernacle, the thought was that he perhaps wrote this for the priest to read with all who would enter into the presence of God. So it's true that it's all those things. It's true that it's a measure against us. And it reminds us of where we struggle and where we fail. But let me tell you what it is as much of that, as much as that, and all the more if you understand the whole counsel of the Bible, the whole counsel of Scripture, it is a view of heaven. It is a view of peace within and without. It's the thing we're building. It's why we work in our hearts to model this and see it in our world because it's home. It's where we belong. And it's what we all yearn for, whether we admit it or not, whether we're cynical about it or not, whether we think it's impossible or not. In our deepest, deepest longings, we know that that's what we want. So first, I want you to note this. I want you to note the reality of the present and the future hope of heaven. I told you you were on a break. So here's the deal, you are. You're just like we were on the mission trip. You're you're sitting in here in the cool of the day, in the cool of the shade, to have your icy cold Coke, and imagine heaven, imagine home, and then go back out into the mission field. That's why Christians come to church. I don't know if that's why you specifically were here today, but that's why Christians come to church. And here's the deal, When 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 you walk through Scripture and it talks about the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, there are two dynamics to it, and they're illustrated uh, here 
when he says, who will sojourn in his tent, in God's tent? Well, sojourn, right? A stranger who visits. A tent, a temporary structure, temporary dwelling, the tabernacle, the tent that the Israelites carried around the desert. The actual physical temple, it seemed very permanent, didn't it? But where is it now? It's in rubble in Jerusalem. It was a temporary home. Your body is not your body, the temple of the Holy Spirit. The kingdom of heaven exists everywhere all the time, but it is also something that you're a temporary part of on this earth. It, it resides in your own heart. You carry it with you wherever you go. You understand the temporary nature of this world. In, in theological terms, we call it the now and the not yet. You're living in the kingdom, but the kingdom is still yet to come in its fullest. So what does it say? Who will sojourn in his tent? Who will dwell on his holy hill? Now that's different. His mountain. His permanent presence. Remember Jesus' conversation with the Samaritan woman? Some people worship here, some people worship there. Jesus, where do you say we will worship? The time will come, the now and the not yet, when people will worship in spirit and in truth. This is an eternal kingdom that is everywhere. It's a thing we take with us in our hearts on a journey to a place uncorrupted by the pain of this world or our own sin. But it's temporary right now as we live in it. It's being prepared for us, in us, and through us. Did you hear that? It's being prepared for us, in us, and through us. You're on break. It's growing like a mustard seed. Remember that, Jesus? What shall I compare the kingdom of heaven to? A mustard seed? That's what that painting is in the back. It's the idea that a little seed of faith is planted and that God grows it up. It's growing like a mustard seed, moving toward a final destination and state of existence with Christ. It is home, and you are on that journey, and God is building it for you, but also in you and through you. Second, I want you to see, it's not only what is in this place. More importantly, it's who is in this place. As Christians, we're not so concerned with what will be the trappings of this place, this kingdom of heaven, as much as we're concerned with who will be in this place. Is it the goal of our faith to avoid hell? Is that the goal of our faith? Is that the, the goal of receiving Christ? Is that His fundamental primary invitation to avoid hell? Or maybe your glass is half full person. Is the primary motivation of the Christian faith, is the primary point of the gospel to receive heaven? To avoid hell and its fires and judgment and to receive heaven and its blessings and prosperities. And here's the deal. You know, we get caught up and preoccupied with the trappings of those things, the fear of the lake of fire and what that horribleness would be like, that horror would be like, but then also the visions of streets of gold and mansions. And so that becomes the first tenet of a lot of presentations of the gospel. Don't you want to avoid hell? 
hellfire and brimstone. Don't you want to avoid hell? Don't you want the rewards of heaven? Receive Jesus and you will get what you want. That's not the gospel. The ultimate thing to fear is not the fires of hell or punishment from God. The ultimate thing to fear is separation from Him. The absence of His loving presence. That's what hell is, you know. C.S. Lewis said, there's nobody in hell who didn't want to be there. Hell is the absence of God's loving presence. The experience of His pure judgment. The rebellion against Him not just his rules, the desire to be God for yourself. Jesus didn't come to save you from hell or secure you for heaven. Those are byproducts. Jesus came to restore you to God. And you need to remember that as you preach the gospel. And you need to remember that as you hear the gospel. Anybody that tells you that Jesus came to help you avoid hell or get to heaven or become fully actualized or anything like that, they're not telling you the truth. The truth is, it's about restoring your relationship with God. God's goal is not, hear this, God's goal is not to be useful to you. That's not his ultimate goal. It is to be loved by you. That's why God did it the way he did it in the Christian faith. He didn't just drop the law down, right? On the mountain. There's the law. Climb the mountain of holiness and get to me. He didn't do that. He didn't even just say, do animal sacrifices to admit to me that you don't know me. No, he sent his son to decisively reveal himself that we might have a personal relationship with the personal God who made us. That's the gospel. His goal is not to be useful to you, it is to be loved by you. It is to dwell together again with you, his people, in perfect peace. Do you understand this? The story of the Garden of Eden wasn't just a story of a beautiful garden without weeds and mosquitoes. It was a story of a place that was the fruit of its creator who walked hand in hand with his creation. That is God's longing to do again and it is for his glory, not yours, because he's the creator, not the created. But the beauty of His glory is that it is wrapped up in His intimate relationship with you. That's why you receive Christ. Because you fall in love again with God. You humble yourself before Him and admit that you rebelled against Him. But you want your Father back. And that's it. And then guess what happens to come along with that? The glories of heaven the distance from the judgments of hell. In Romans 8, the Apostle Paul said this, For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the streets of gold. No. From the love of God. In Christ Jesus our Lord. That's all he wanted. Streets be what the streets be. 
So third, not only do we need to remember the present reality and the future hope of heaven, not only do we need to remember it's not what but who is there, let's look a little bit at what life is like in this place we call heaven. Let's go on a journey like my friend Kent took us on. Let's walk into the... Wendy's is a really bad analogy for God and heaven, but let's take that journey and let's sit down at that banquet table with God and let's see what it would be like there. It says in God's house, we will walk blamelessly. Now that's not just a self-righteous thing that should puff you up. Let me tell you what uh, one of the... One of the things that that word can mean, and I think it's best translated as, and that is complete. Without deficiency, without defect, without insecurity, without those little dark thoughts within you that drag you down or the people that beat against you, you will be in this place called heaven without deficiency. Complete. No demons in or out. Does that sound good? In this place we call heaven, we'll speak the truth in our hearts, it says. Let me tell you what that means. It means our words will reflect our actions. It'll really happen. It's not just a theory. You know, that's really what it it really means to take the Lord's name in vain. It's more than just using His name flippantly or in a swear word. It really means representing Him and then corrupting His image. That's what it means to break that command, not to take the Lord's name in vain. So in God's house, you will be complete, without deficiency, free, and there will be no hypocrisy. Does that sound good to you? Is there any religion in the world that wouldn't dream of a place like that? What else is it like in heaven? In God's house, we love our neighbors. Specifically in this particular passage, we don't slander And we don't take up reproach against our friends. You know what that means? It's really beautiful. Um, That word slander, uh, wrapped up in that, uh, is the word foot. And what it means is we don't walk a foot. We don't walk around looking for reasons to scandalize and savoring and reveling in scandal. Unconfirmed rumors. I heard this. I read that. Somebody posted this. So I presented it as fact because it was juicy and it was interesting to talk about with my friends. You know what a secret is? It's something you only tell to one person at a time. That's how these things get out. So he says, don't be a slanderer. Don't walk around looking for ways to scandalize people and to bring them low. And it says, even if they are confirmed, even if it is confirmed that a neighbor, which by the way, how did Jesus define neighbor? Pretty much anybody who God puts in your path. And even if they are confirmed, even if someone does have a fall, a scandal, He says, don't hold them up for reproach. He says, protect their dignity. Protect them from themselves. Protect them from the world. Don't revel in their fall. Don't help society drive them into isolation and despair. Love them. Love your friends, Jesus says. Anybody can do that. But love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. So that's what it'll be like in God's house. We'll love our neighbors. So what that means, practically speaking for us, is pretty much avoid all reality shows. About 7 out of 10 social media posts 
Oh, and the news. Just don't even watch the news. Let me say something seriously about that. You know, we do have a lot of means through social media, which I believe, by the way, is not all bad. We have a lot of means to express our concerns and, and our thoughts and our philosophies and to disagree and all those kinds of things. Obviously, we all know that gets abused. But let me tell you something that I was reminded of this week. I think one of the problems is, is that we do that uh, too often in the spirit that God is talking about here, in a spirit of slander, in a need to revel in the corruptions of the others. Well, yesterday, uh, a friend of mine posted on Facebook uh, a letter. It was written by Dr. Martin Luther King from a Birmingham prison. And I read that letter. It's 23 pages long. If you've never read it, you should read it. Uh, he was not a perfect man. I don't agree with everything he ever did. But let me tell you what he did with moral brilliance. He was a, he was a moral savant in this way. No matter what he was doing, from him exuded the love of Christ there was no us and them. It was just us. And he sought, even with his enemies, even with those who would persecute him, to rise above all of that mess and paint for them a picture of what? A dream. Where you were judged by the content of your character and not the color of your skin and so forth. And the dream was for everybody. It wasn't just a power shift. So he had some very specific rules that he personally followed before he would, take, he would engage in a social action. Let me tell you what they were. First, collection of the facts. And these are in his letter. Collection of the facts to, discernment, to determine whether injustices are alive. How would that change our discourse if all of us, before we engaged, stopped and said, wait a minute, I'm going to study the facts and I'm going to see if this really was an injustice or exactly what the injustice was. The second thing, negotiation. The first thing you do is you go to the offender, you go to the unjust privately, and you seek to make a relationship, you seek to make amends, you seek to make progress, not in the public sector, not in a way to humiliate and pressure and drive other people, force them to believe what you believe. You give them a chance to reason together with you in love first. What if we did that in our discourse today? What if you did that? What if I did that? Third thing, this is the big one, Self-purification. How about this? Don't ever write another cross Facebook post until you have completely and thoroughly examined your own heart, your own corruptions, your own attitudes. How would that change the complexion of our public discourse? And lastly, direct action. I can whine and complain all I want and now I can broadcast it to the world where everybody gets to listen. That is not direct action. I could actually find out how to do something that makes a difference. And then I could go do it. That's what it'll be like in heaven. Except in heaven, it won't be like here. And there won't be slander. Blame games. All those things. Pretty beautiful. God says in His house... The vile person is despised. Now let me say something about that. Scripture interprets Scripture. So when you read that, it doesn't, you didn't just get permission to hate somebody. I didn't just nullify what I said about saying mean things about people on Facebook. Not advocating for self-righteous hatred of sinners. Because remember, in Scripture it also says, love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you. Do not judge lest you be judged. Let he who has not sinned cast the first stone. So that's not what he's talking about so much here in the big picture, in the whole council of Scripture. What it means this. Take care is this. Take care not to admire a vile person or a corrupted life. 
Don't be drawn into, fascinated with, celebrate the lives and lifestyles, back to reality shows, of people who revel in rebellion against godly things. Don't admire or overlook evil traits because they're attached to something you like. Well, that person is this, that, and the other thing, but they're successful. They're influential. They're powerful. They're famous. They're beautiful. They're wealthy. They're talented. So while they celebrate evil, I will celebrate them. He says, no, don't celebrate that. Despise that image of a person. Despise that version of home. Instead, and this is the pivot point of the whole psalm, and it's why it's about God and not about the trappings of heaven. Instead, fear God. Make Him and His Word and His character your vision for heaven. So the last thing it encourages us to do, and this speaks very well to our uh, Renewal Sunday, it says in, in God's house, in heaven, we don't take advantage of people. In God's house, we don't take advantage of people. We don't charge usurious interest. We don't, we don't accept bribes. We don't advantage ourselves to the disadvantage of others. Nothing more polluted to God than to take advantage of the destitute and desperate. To take profit in a person's misery. To sell that single mother a car that you know she can't afford for 30% interest because you know she's desperate. She's got no other choice. Let's say uh, a hurricane, a little object lesson. This is a great one because hurricanes really quickly, they separate the haves from the have-nots. And it's, in the big way, maybe it's, you know, it's the one, the people of means and the people without means and how quickly they can get things, you know, recovered. Uh, but it also just the guy with the electricity and the guy without it. <laughs> My street, our whole side, we had power on in five hours. Cross the street, eight days. The haves and the have-nots. So here's what God says. Uh, we all know that we're not supposed to go and do mean, usurious things to people. I think this room gets that. But let me tell you another way that we can do that if we're not careful. My power is out, so I kick and I scream and I drag and I cajole and I call the FPL and I make fun of their mamas and I do everything I can do to get them to come to my house and fix my power without consideration for what they'll have to leave in order to do that. That's a form of it. I'll kick and I'll scream and I'll sue and I'll do everything I can do to get my needs met, to get my recovery restored. And as soon as my lights are on and I can go back to the store and Starbucks is open so I can get my latte, I have forgotten about all of the other people in my city and in my world who are suffering as a result of the storm that kind of passed me by. That's this. And I can tell you in my own heart, I was guilty of those things. So that's his last challenge. Pretty sad. <laughs> As I said, you can really get beaten down with this psalm. But let me tell you why you don't need to be. So I told you that in El Rontito, it was miserable and Kent painted this beautiful picture of home. There was something we couldn't do, and that was we couldn't show kids pictures of home. It was forbidden to show them pictures of our houses or our cars or our schools or the mall or anything like that. Why was it forbidden? Because those little kids had no hope of ever having that. They had no hope of that as home. 
And by the way, those were just material things. That's just a limited physical example of a reality. But here's the reality for us. The reality for us is that it's available to everyone. It's the whole point of the Christian faith. The whole point of the Christian faith is you're absolutely not able to climb that ladder. You absolutely cannot meet that standard in this life. It is impossible. When Jesus gave them the law, He also gave them the the sacrificial system to say, and when you break the law, sacrifice an unblemished lamb because that unblemished lamb is symbolic of a sacrifice that I will make for you so that even though you are not able, there will be a way for you to be in my presence forever. So, I can show people a picture of this heaven. I can take it out. I can flaunt it. I can show it to my friends. Because Christ has made a way. So as we pursue Renewal Sunday, we don't do it uh, with this idea that there's this God looking down on us to judge us, or this commander that is Jesus out ahead in the battlefield looking back disappointedly and judgmentally and you know, disgusted with our with our weaknesses and our inabilities and our laziness. That's not how it works. Because God loves you, He wants you home. Christ has done all of that work on your behalf to do what you could not do so that He could adopt you. Not just recruit you to the army. The language of Scripture is that He could adopt you as sons and daughters and take you home. So our work of renewal is not a burden that we drag up a mountain. It's giving people a vision of home and taking them there. And right now, you are on break. But when you leave here today, That's what you are about. Let's pray. Lord God, Father, Abba Father, that word, that word of endearment that we would say, Daddy. (laughs) We read this psalm, we could be so discouraged. We could be so frustrated with ourselves and our in this broken world, but instead we can read this psalm as a vision for the way things not only ought to be, but are becoming and will be, not by our power, but by the power and work of Christ in us and through us. So Father, as redeemed redeemers, as sons and daughters of the King, with this vision for home, we pray that you would make it plain to each one of us which part of your kingdom, how and where, you would have us renew and restore as a part of that tapestry that is the vision of home. We pray those things in Jesus' name. Amen.